Bible uh, that is next to you, or if you did not bring one, if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, so please take that uh, from us to you, but I encourage you to follow along with us this morning as we cover this next section in this passage of Scripture in our sermon series called King and Kingdom. So let's get rolling, all right? So Jesus, uh, this is a major transition for Jesus and his ministry. We've seen Jesus born. We have seen Jesus kind of inaugurated into his ministry through his baptism and through uh, by John. And then we see Jesus's first sermon. We see Jesus traveling around. He is healing diseases. He is uh, calling people to repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet we see a transition beginning today in the letter that Matthew has written in hopes of seeing people saved through this passage of Scripture. King Jesus has been traveling from city to city, village to village, preaching in Galilee. In the original language, that first statement there is this, when in Jesus throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This idea that we see in this passage that up until this point, Jesus, he practically stays in the Galilee, kind of in this northern region for most of his ministry until he starts heading toward what he knows to be is his impending death, burial, and resurrection. And so up until this point, and he continues to do so until later on in the the letter, um, Jesus is kind of on this tour This rotation, he'll go from place to place, preach, teach, heal, call people to repentance, he gathers more followers, he goes to the next city, the next village, does the same thing, and just practically is is walking in circles from town to town, revealing that he truly is the Messiah. It's from one place to the other and then back again, and in the verse 36 Jesus says, or the Bible says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. We have read several times now in this sermon series that the crowds continue to grow and grow and grow. Wherever Jesus is, there is simultaneously a crowd. Um, They are practically harassing Jesus. Uh, the only time that Jesus can get away from a crowd is that he has to sneak away um, to pray and to seek God and to find rest. He, he literally has to remove himself, sneak out, get on a boat somewhere, travel or tell them to go somewhere. And he goes in the opposite direction so that he can pray and seek God's will. The crowds consumed Jesus. They pressed into Jesus. Many in the crowd sought true and genuine, authentic faith in Jesus, while even more were just really consumed with who this guy was. The majority of them sought maybe entertainment. Um, Maybe they sought uh, an immediate need being met. Or for some others, they were simply gathering evidence that they would one day use against Jesus in the mockery of his trial, in his arrest and execution. Jesus, however, does not rejoice in the crowd. Um, Jesus doesn't turn and look at the crowd and look at his disciples and then say, yes, we have arrived. We have a crowd. We are successful. 
We have a crowd. He doesn't look at his disciples and say, look at the, all these people. Look at the mass majority of all of these people. I've come, I've set up my kingdom, and now my people um, have arrived. They are here. And yet, Jesus shows us a very different connection or feeling or emotion or drive toward this crowd. The first thing that we see, point number one, is, is that Jesus sees them. He doesn't just pay attention to them. He just doesn't acknowledge that there is a crowd, but Jesus sees them. And point number two is, is that Jesus has compassion on them. Now, compassion is a really interesting um, word inside of the original language. Um, we often get this idea of simply this emotion but the word compassion, every time that I think it's used in the New Testament, I think it's always in reference to Jesus. Um, and it carries a much more weightiness than what we, I think, happen to, to carry with it in our English understanding of this word. Um, literally, in the Greek, the word compassion means the inward parts. It means the entrails. It means from your bowels. It means from the guts. How many times have you heard in our culture the statement, man, follow your gut? What's it meaning? Even that term that we notice in English, follow your gut, precedes or it infers that there is action within this feeling, this drive, that there is some something inside of you, not just this heart flighty feeling, but there is something in, in the literal loins, like your groin area that is driving you, causing you to want passionately for something to take place. This wasn't an emotional flighty fling like a seventh grade boyfriend or girlfriend. Now this, this was a moment of deep deep inward gut feeling that that drove this person to action it was intense the action caused by compassion is irresistible it will happen if you have compassion towards someone or something you will do something it is not just a sorrow or just a a general pity but it is something that is driving how many times have we ever seen in a cartoon, a movie, a television show, it's practically been overdone in Hollywood, but we still have this same feeling whenever we see this taking place. It's a busy intersection in New York City, and, and there's a mom, and she's got a stroller out in front of her, and she's going across the, cra the crosswalk, and then the cinematography, it cuts to a, a, a man, and he's wearing like a, a tank top t-shirt, he's got a big cigar, he's driving a Mack truck, and he's not paying attention slamming a sandwich and he's not looking that it's a red light for him and so we see this impending doom of this beautiful mom with this baby as she's walking across the catwalk and it flips to the guy and this Mack truck is coming and then it flips to the woman flips to the truck flips to the woman flips to the truck flips to the truck and all of a sudden you see this hero out of nowhere who sees this about to take place and he swoops in or he knocks the woman out of the way right and the truck goes by and they're safe that is compassion. It's not, oh man, there is something really serious happening over there. I hope someone takes care of that. That's not compassion. 
Compassion is seeing an issue, realizing the depths of that issue, and then pursuing after it at all cost. Compassion is the, the witnessing of someone in dire need that compels action at all costs. The sacrificing of self for the need of another. Compassion. Again, the dire need that compels action at all costs. The sacrificing of self for the need of another. Jesus tells us that he sees the crowd who has been following him and, and now he has compassion toward them. But why? Why does Jesus have compassion toward them? Because he ultimately sees them for who they really are. He sees the depths of their hearts. He, he sees their, 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 their brokenness. He, he sees their sinful nature. Because, what does the Bible tells us? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus states that this crowd that he is paying attention to, that they are harassed and that they are helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Now I want you to see the significance of the imagery that Jesus is using. I don't know about you, but words mean something. Words matter. And they matter a lot to Jesus. He gave us a, a book of them. They're his Words, And we need to understand the depths and the imagery that Jesus is saying inside of these terms. Again, inside of the original language, the word harassed, what does that mean? It paints a very interesting word picture. The word harassed, biblically speaking, literally means to be torn apart, to be mangled. So Jesus looks upon these people and he sees that they are, they are wounded, they're mangled, they're torn apart. And then helpless in the original language literally means to be cast down, to be thrown down to the ground. So when Jesus lays his eyes upon these people, he sees them as something that has been ripped apart, that it has been mangled, that it has been beaten to death and then cast down, left to suffer and die. It's always interesting to me. Um, I, I love animals, okay? So please hear me. They taste good, all right? Um, but in that, it's always amazing to me how people will get so wrapped up into the care of animals, where it literally controls them. It can easily become a, a god for them. They can even edify animals above people. Okay, again, I, I don't think that we should mishandle animals. Um, I've had to lay down um, a dog before, and I hope to never experience that ever, ever, ever again. Okay, I cannot get that image out of my mind. It's terrible. Okay, but it does have to happen. I don't think animals should be beaten or any of those sorts of things. But I want you to imagine just for a moment, because Jesus says they're like a sheep in this. I want you to uh, imagine... A moment, an animal that has been abandoned, that has been neglected. My sister and I have had several dogs over the years when we were little kids, and I can't tell you how many of them my dad had to put down because we would find them in the street hit by a car in the back end, crippled, laying there, the front part of their body fined, the back part of their body unable to move, at any moment, they're going to suffer, and they're going 
to die. When Jesus looks upon these people, this is what he is beginning to see and to relate to those who are listening to him. The commentaries allude that the the picture of a sheep lying passively on the ground, not knowing what to do or about their need. This week when I was teaching at Western, I had a college student tell me, I said, well, what things are you being involved in? She's like, well, I actually went involved, or I went and volunteered at the Humane Society this week. And she's like, I've never, I don't think I've ever done that before. She's like, I walked into the first room where all these cats were in these cages, and I could just see their little paws coming through the cage. And she's like, immediately, as soon as I got there, I'm just boo-hooing. And she goes, I'm boohooing. You know why? Because I know if somebody doesn't adopt these animals, they're all going to be killed. She felt sorrow. But she didn't adopt any of them. She did not feel compassion. She felt sorrow. She felt grief. All those things are real. Okay? But she also knew of the impending doom of these animals at that shelter. Thank God we have that shelter. And yet within that, there is impending doom. These creatures are going to die. This is how vulnerable that sheep are. You know, sheep are are beautiful animals in a lot of ways. I think that's where we get wool from, correct? I'm thankful for wool. Keeps us warm in the winter. In and of themselves... They can be very beautiful animals. But if you've been around church very long, you've heard probably many sermons on sheep. They're dumb. They're really dumb. And that's the way that God made them. He made them dumb. Ignorant, really. Stupid. Okay? He made them that way. I... I would even say that God made that animal and uses them over and over and over in Scripture to, to, and keeps them that way to show us a physical, earthly example of who we are. Of who we are. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, we have seen this illustration of God's people being sheep and God being the good shepherd. See, sheep, they can't take care of themselves. Um, It's not in their nature. Without human interaction, without a shepherd, um, they cannot take care of themselves. Literally, it's not that they have been trained to be this way. Do you get that? Sheep have not been trained to be dumb. They just are. Sheep have, have not been trained not to be able to take care of themselves. They literally can't. It is not something they've been conditioned to do. It is something that is in with their very nature. These are animals that in order to survive must have human interaction or they will surely die. Sheep have no defense mechanism. I mean, when have you ever heard of the rapid sheep killing somebody? You haven't. All right? They have no way of defending themselves at all. Listen to this. Imagine just for a moment that you are in a herd of sheep. You have no shepherd. Did you know that a, a wolf can sneak into that herd and right out in front of everybody, snatch one of you. And right out there in front of everybody, eat your friend Bob. 
And you know what all those other sheep will do? Stand there and watch it. Stand there and watch it as, as one of their very own is, is being devoured because, because a sheep without a shepherd is surely a dead sheep. Sheep struggle to find their own food. They have a poor memory. They're prone to wander. And they're completely dependent upon a shepherd. What does Jesus do? Jesus sees the crowd and he says, he sees them for who they really are. He sees them as, as mangled, crippled, cast down sheep without a shepherd. He sees them as Ezekiel 34, 5 states. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all of the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not looking upon a small group. Jesus is not looking upon merely those whom we will later call the 12 apostles. No, Jesus is, is looking upon crowds of crowds of crowds and crowds and crowds of people. I read one commentary this week that said it was probably in this whole area, three million folks in all of these cities and villages combined. So Jesus is looking upon the masses Jesus is looking upon the masses. He is, he is seeing them, and he does not look upon them with contempt, but he looks upon them with great compassion. One of the books I read this week said that Jesus saw a vast, disorganized mass of uncared for sheep. Jesus saw a sea of people who were in danger and without the resources to escape it. Jesus has a deep sense of, of empathy and pity and concern and sorrow. Jesus saw them and literally feels their agony. This is not one animal that has been hit by a truck. These are mass groups of people who are mangled and thrown down before Jesus. And what Jesus knew was infinite. He knew the eternal weight of their depraved condition and coming judgment upon them. He felt the weightiness and the realization of hell and people being separated from God's eternal love. Jesus sees these people. He has compassion on these people. And notice what Jesus does. The Bible tells us in verse 37... Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now I don't know about you, but I think that this is a really interesting thing. Why? Because I believe that Jesus is God. Have you ever seen one of these TV preachers that can supposedly heal people? So he blows and spits and waves his hands all over them and they, whoo, they fall out. Anybody? Does anybody watch TV in here? Okay, anybody alive in here? All right, thank you. Amen, brother. Bless you. All right. This, this image that we have is, is not of some TV evangelist, but I believe that Jesus is God. One of the questions that we often like to ask, which I don't think we should, is why? Right? 
But Jesus being God, a lot of times we don't get the why, but, I, but I think about this is God incarnate. This is God on the earth. All Jesus has to do, ladies and gentlemen, is show up on the earth and say, you're all saved. You're all forgiven. He can snap his finger. He can wave his nose, twinkle his nose, whatever. And immediately, with not even necessarily a word from his lips, but a thought in his mind, he can establish salvation for all of these people. And yet, that's not the way that Jesus decides to do it. It's not the way he does it. Jesus looks to his disciples. And by this time, it's believed that there's many more than 12. Jesus picks the 12 out of the mass group who are now following him. And this is where we begin to see the transition in Matthew's letter. We've seen, again, the king is born, the king is appointed, all these sorts of things. It's all kind of centering about the, around the ministry of Jesus. He's doing all of the preaching. He's doing all of the healing. He's doing all of the casting out of the demons. But Jesus then turns now to this ragamuffin group of followers. Hours before, there's Matthew, the chief of sinners, the the tax collector, and now this young man is following Jesus, and Jesus has been broadcasting this way, and now he turns to look at this guy who moments ago was a thief and a robber, an oppressor of the poor. And what does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the Laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus turns and he looks at these disciples, and guess what? They haven't been trained. They haven't been given a four spiritual laws book, it, a, a, a track. Like they're probably still cussing. Like they haven't been told that that's not, that's not cool anymore, right? They, they haven't learned how to be Christian. They've been following this Jesus, this rabbi. He's been teaching them these things. He's been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's been illustrating them this new kingdom that he has, he has brought into this world, that salvation is really based on him and not on works. He has, he has taught them many of things, but he has not really taught them everything. He's not giving them any responsibility yet. These are baby Christians, many of which don't really know who's going on. It's by believed by most scholars that even these disciples don't really understand who Jesus is completely until after the ascension and then the Holy Spirit falls on them in Jerusalem. They're still confused up until those points. Yet Jesus turns, he looks at these guys with this agonizing concern for the masses. He says, you know, do, do you see them? Do you see the crowd? Do you, do you really see them? Do you not see them as, as Jew, Gentile, religious, or rebellious, but do you see them for who they really are? Do you see them like mangled sheep thrown down? Do you see them as lost? Do you see them eternally separated from God's love? Do you see them as fruit in my vineyard that are rotting on the vine or being consumed by the locusts? Do you have compassion toward them? Are you not really concerned about the spirit condition of those around you? 
Are you not gut-wrenched at what you see? Jesus tells them that the, the harvest, the people, are ripe and ready to be brought in. Whose harvest is it? It's, it's, it's his harvest. It's God's harvest. He says, man, they're ready. It's, it's not like a lot of times I've had a garden several times. I love planting a garden, but I get really impatient. It's like I can stand next to it all day waiting for that sweet corn, silver queen, sweet corn, peaches and cream corn. Oh. I don't care how long you stand there. You are not going to watch it unless you stand a long time. I want instantaneous. And, and Jesus is saying, he's like, we, this seed has not just been planted, but, but this seed is, is ripened. There is fruit in this harvest. All we need is for people to go do it. And you know what? Jesus in and of himself can go do it on his own, but that is not the means by which Jesus wants to accomplish this ministry. And so what does he tell these guys to do? He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to Sent out labors into his harvest. Notice the first step in the king's mission is to see the people, to see the people as God sees the people. The second thing is to have compassion upon these folks. The third thing is to pray. Notice, I've never noticed that until this week. Notice, what does Jesus want them to pray for? It's at this point in Scripture, Jesus doesn't ask them to pray for the lost. Now, should we pray for the lost? Yes, okay? We should definitely be praying for the lost. But that's not the condition of this passage. That's not the command that we see in this passage. No, Jesus asked them to pray. He commands them. It is a command that Jesus is given here. He commands them to pray, not for the lost in this case, but he's praying that God would send forth laborers to go into those fields and to pluck that fruit. Praise for workers. This pray earnestly literally means to beg, to plead. It's his field. It's his fruit. He is the one within us that will cultivate compassion and then sends laborers to the field. Jesus is going, there's only one of me. Pray that God will multiply my abilities, my giftedness, what He is allowing me to do. May it be multiplied into these men and women and may they go and help me to pluck this fruit. It's also interesting because the term send out here literally means to thrust out, to drive out, to expel, to release to force out. So, so Jesus is saying, man, pray to, to the, the man who owns the harvest. Pray to God that he would cast out, that he would force out. That There was one description of it that literally said that it was like lighting a fire under someone. 
that, that he's saying, man, pray to God that he will expel people to go, that he would release people to go, that they would be, see people as God sees them, that they would have compassion as Jesus has compassion on them, and that God would boldly, there would be nothing but an irresistible movement amongst God's people to go and to bring in this harvest. So, Mission Church, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And I'm going to ask you that as I share with you some things that you would pray. Now, I'm going to read a list here of of ways in which that I believe that God has graced us tremendously here at Mission. And man, I I want us to celebrate these things because these things are super encouraging to me as one of your pastors and even more importantly as a member here at Mission. We have seen several babies born. We've seen a couple get married. We've seen an increased number of of Western students. We've helped several families with financial burdens. We've supported the Hazels in the adoption of Ben. We've prayed for Pastor Justin and Stephanie as they begin the adoption process. Several of our college students have spent their summers participating in missions. We saw the birth of missional communities. We've seen provision for our financial needs. And no, we don't have everything that we want, but God has truly given us everything that we need. We've seen people from outside of our church and state send financial support to mission. We've helped to plant a church in Arizona by sending them $6,000. We have missionaries in Kazakhstan. We have people gathering in life-on-life discipleship. We've solidified our partnership with reaching unreached people groups in Africa through Mark and Parker Phillips, and we will be sending our first of many teams, preferably there, in 2017. We joined the Southern Baptist denomination so that we could cooperate with other churches in the spreading of the gospel. We have joined hands, um, hand in hand with Hope House Ministries locally, um, providing financially and and with several from mission, not only working there, but others volunteering there on a regular basis to help alleviate physical and spiritual poverty through gospel restoration. Recently, when a Burmese apartment complex burned down, several of our members were there providing aid and support to these families. We got to celebrate with Pastor Justin as he completed seminary, and that is a blessing. We have seen people awaken to the seriousness of God's Word and a deeper desire to know Him. We have seen God work in our families and heal issues in marriages. We've seen an increase in number of volunteers. We've seen an increased passion for teaching our kids through Mission Kids. We've seen a deeper commitment to caring for each other in times of need and desire to be more authentic Christ-centered community. We've gotten to witness three baptisms and have seen an increase in our covenant membership. I believe that those are all gifts from God. And I believe that those don't even really, it's not a complete list because there are many things of which I don't know about of which God has done. And we need to understand whether you think those are big things or small things, those are all 
God things. Those are all measures of grace that God has given us as Mission Church. However, if I'm to, to pull from the book of Revelation, that a lot of times in those first seven letters, and Todd and Crosby and I have had several conversations about this, is that if Jesus was to show up at Mission Church's door, what would he say? And I think the first thing that he would say is that he would Look at what I did. Look at all of those things that I've done in this small congregation over the, the last five years of its existence. Look at all of these things. And you need to understand, again, these are great things. These are powerful things. These are godly things. However, the harvest that I'm praying for, the harvest that I'm asking that each one of you would join me in is very different than what we have seen thus far. Please hear me. In the last year, I am unaware of a single person who was an unbeliever who has come to authentic relationship with Jesus and folded in to the covenant membership of Mission Church. Not one person that I'm aware of is a part of this congregation today because of the proclamation from our lips to a lost person not that you can save them. We all get that. You can't. And them being now a part of this congregation. I don't know what that does to you. It has caused me to shed many tears. And it's not to cast shade upon you. But confessionally, as one of your pastors, besides the proclamation of the gospel here and besides my commitment to these men at Hope House and Program Living, I have talked much about Jesus from everything to baristas to waiters to random people. But I have not proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and called people to repentance in those areas. This greatly grieves me. It is the purpose of planting a church. And though God has blessed us in many, many, many ways, I am grieved personally. I've been stirred by this for, for quite some time. It has been difficult for me to, to put into words um, the, the, the conviction that lies within um, my heart. 
And yet, I'm not without hope that this can change. See, it may be good that it's mostly just us here this morning. Sometimes we need to have a family talk. The life of the church, the responsibility of the pastor is not a joke to me. Your lives are not a joke to me. This is very serious. It's very serious what Jesus is getting at. He's been doing all of this work. And you realize, okay, to reach the masses, to reach these people, these, these people are lost. I don't know if it's that we don't believe that hell is really real. Or that we haven't been, been moved to the point of really understanding the purpose of the church. The purpose of us being here. The, the purpose of us remaining on this planet and not just being sucked away. To, but there, man, there are family members. There are brothers and sisters. There are, are people in this room. There are neighbors. There are, are co-workers. There are the people who are waiting on us in these restaurants. They, they do not know Jesus. And yet we're, we're not seeing them the way that Jesus sees them. Because if so... Again, we can't save anyone. I, I, I get that. I understand that. But I believe if I share the gospel with 100 people, God is going to save some of those people. Right? Amen? If I share with none, none are going to be saved through the, by the means of which God has given me to proclaim the gospel. Does that make sense? It's, it's him. It's about his, his work. It's, it's his harvest. And yet I'm, I'm compelled this morning. I'm deeply grieved. I've been majorly, I mean, physically depressed over this truth in my life, in, in our life, at the lack of passion and compassion for people who are lost and undone and they're going to hell. Not just foreign people groups. People from Bowling Green. Your neighbors, my neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, all of these sorts of things. And yet, though I feel this deeply, I'm, I'm not without hope that this can change. I'm not without hope that this can change. I, I believe this is the type of harvest that I'm now asking God to bring to Mission Church. Could the, could the next season in the life of Mission Church be one of sending out, seeing people as Jesus sees them, mangled and thrown down, separated from God's love, heading toward hell? May God grant us the power through the Holy Spirit to have genuine passion for Him and compassion for others. It is the great commandment to love God. And to love people. And yet many of us are claiming to love God, and yet we don't love people, because if we did, we would share the gospel with them. God may not choose to use us in this manner. I get that. But I do not believe that revival is something that you can put on a poster, on a wall somewhere and say revival tonight at seven o'clock. That's not revival. 
Revival is left up solely to the discretion of God. However, I want us to be put into a place that if God would desire that for us, then we would be in a position where God could faithfully use us. Historically, the people whom God uses to bring about authentic conversion and discipleship are people who have a deep desire to seek God through prayer. Before the harvest, and we're going to talk over the next three weeks about mission, but this is where it starts, because this is where Jesus says it starts. Before the harvest, there is a preparation through prayer. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't turn around to the group of disciples that are following after him and say, all right, I got a sign-up list. Come on, sign up for evangelism. Sign up to, to join my band of brothers. Sign up to do this. That's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He says, man, go seek God. Go ask God to send forth labors. Go and pray. Pray earnestly. Beg God to do something in our city through us as Mission Church. Do you, do you believe that Jesus is going to save some people in the next year in Bowling Green? Yes. Then God use us as a conduit for that message. If not, what are we doing here? Why do we exist? Why do we exist? I think it's because we get really complacent in what we know and we get really thankful that we're good. And we'll blame God's sovereignty for them not knowing. I think that's dangerous. In the words of David Platt, do we realize the gravity of eternity? Far more than sports, money, sex, or success in this world, there are people around us every day and today and every day who are eternally lost. Do we sense the urgency? Do we see the world with the eyes of Jesus? We don't have time to play games with our lives or play games in the church. We don't have time to, to waste our lives on the pursuits, pleasures, and possessions of this world when there is something infinitely more important for us to do. But what exactly is that purpose? What is more important than all this world offers answer? The commission of Christ. See, many times we are more concerned with ourselves and our time and our money and I just, I'm tired. Then we are at the reality of, of dead people around us who are, are heading toward hell. This week I contacted Mark Phillips to get a global perspective on this passage and this is what Mark sent me. Mark is our missionary, him and his wife, to the Songhai. Listen to what he says. This text is, is part of the very first discipleship lesson we do with new believers. Don't they have to be trained or don't you have to build a relationship with them? We immediately, they teach new believers this. We think it's important and foundational to the Christian walk. The first thing we do is to, to point out the heart of God. He, he looks at the people and has compassion on them because they are lost. 
This is one of the first and most important steps we take if we want to make a kingdom impact, and it's this. Do I really care for my neighbor? Do you care for your neighbor? Do you care for that brother, that sister, that aunt, that uncle, that cousin, that friend, that coworker who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? Do I really care for my uncle, my coworker, my gym buddy? Do I care about the 3,100 people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus and will spend an eternity in a real place called hell or not? Do we care? Guilt, obligation, and sheer willpower are not long-term motivators for the mission. Compassion is. Another thing that we like to point out is that Jesus doesn't seem to think the problem with the harvest will not be enough people responding to the gospel, but rather not enough people going. Listen to this. This text is very heavy on my heart. For the past few days, as I've been in three villages who have never heard the gospel, they are wide open. They want to hear more and more and more and more. And yet there are so few believers and harvest workers that it's next to impossible to get to all the places. I'm going to ask you to listen to me very carefully to make a commitment to attend over the next few weeks. I'm going to ask you to join with me in fighting the drift of complacency and tradition and justifications and excuses. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying. I'm going to ask you as a congregation to, to whenever you so choose, that you would commit to fasting at least one meal a week and to spend more time praying with each other and having biblical conversations about discipleship on mission. If you're on the email list, then you have noticed over the last several months, and it's amazing to see how God has orchestrated all of this, but we have several opportunities coming up for you to join us in prayer. Beginning with next Saturday is an opportunity for our ladies. We're going to be having a prayer breakfast at 7 o'clock. Husbands, I would encourage you to help us free up your wives so they can join us in prayer. You can watch your kids for an hour. A week from this Wednesday, we're taking a break from our normal MCs, and we're having a joint prayer gathering. And then later in October, we're having another men's prayer, we're having a men's prayer breakfast. And I don't think that this is by chance. I think this is by God's design. What do you have for us? A season of harvest. May this be the season that Jesus humbles us, makes us desperate for him, and supernaturally implants within us a heart for the lost. Brothers and sisters, I say all of this as a sheep that was once mangled and cast down. And yet Jesus saw compassion upon me. And he did not do that from far off. He did it through a mama who loves her boy. Took him to church all the time. 
He did it through a man named Dr. Trafton at Western Kentucky University who taught me the Bible for the first time. And I would just sit in his class and I'd be like, just, God, what have, what have you done? And it was a history-based class. There was no altar call, no offering. I mean, what's up? No songs, just historically teaching the Bible, and it was like God was just removing scales from my eyes. He, he did it through a man named Richard Carwile, who took me under his wing and asked me really tough questions and made me go knock on people's doors and share the gospel. He did it through some books written by John Piper. God has shown much compassion on me. He's put people in my life to help me. And I have forgotten who I once was, which has led to a chronic life of disobedience in the pursuit of seeing others come to Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Will you join me in fasting? As we prepare and pray to God for a season of harvest. Let's pray.